Welcome back, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. The History of China-Vietnam Relations, Part 3. Last time, we got as far as the lamentable ending of the Tang Dynasty. Still have miles to go before Bao Dai's abdication. I'll try and pick up the pace a little. Thanks for sticking with the program, and to everyone who has remained true to the CHP going back 199 episodes ago to June of 2010, a special thanks to you, my core, my base. What a past eight years it's been. Some good times were sure had. Well, by me, anyway. We ended up last episode in the quagmire of the Nanchao Kingdom. That was an area that combined all the hill tribes and power centers spread out over today's Yunnan, Myanmar, and Laos. Mostly Yunnan. That one's hard to explain. So 865, the Tang Dynasty, even back on their heels like they were by this time, mustered up the strength to take back their capital at Dai La, modern-day Hanoi, now in the Tang Protectorate of Annam. Not taking any chances, they built a wall around the city four and a half miles in circumference with an 18-foot-wide moat. But Tang China? At one time, they were one of the premier civilizations on the planet. But end of the ninth century, they were coming in for a hard landing and the rest of China with them. And once they were officially gone in 907, their former protectorate in Annam broke free of their reins and local clans, who were always chafing against Tang imperial rule, acted independently and defied what had been the norm for already 200 years. For the meantime... Vietnam was left to its own devices, with local powers all trying to out-backstab the other. This is what always happened. China would get distracted with some national crisis, in this case the disintegration of the empire, and Vietnam used that state of affairs to shake loose from them and attempt to build something of their own. Tang China broke up into an era known as the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period. And by the sound of that name, it's safe to assume China was not a unified empire anymore and had broken down into a series of five dynasties in the north and ten competing states down in the south. And this disunion lasted until 979. Nineteen years into the milestone year of 960 that marked the founding of the Song Dynasty. It took a while, but Zhao Kuangyin got them all. That's coming later on. The Viet people, however didn't get to enjoy their holiday from China for that long. If you look at a map of China during this Wu Dai Shi Guo period, this five, five dynasties, ten kingdoms period, you'll notice the kingdom at the southernmost point was called Southern Han. It encompassed most of Guangdong, Hainan, and southern Guangxi, the part that ran along the northern border of Vietnam, which is not called Vietnam yet. That comes later. A treacherous plot in the Viet capital, led to one faction seizing power. And this group sent a request to the southern Han emperor asking for some military support for their side. And the southern Han ruler, based in Guangzhou, decided to move in on the former Tang protectorate of Annam. Beginning in 930, the southern Han forces went in to establish some semblance of order and pick up in Vietnam where the Tang dynasty had left off. But try as they might, southern Han troops could never fully put out the fires. And amidst this unrest in northern Vietnam, rose the son of a very high up Tang official serving down in the Red River region. 
And this son followed his father's footsteps into the government and gravitated towards a military career and got himself recognized for his abilities. And this was another A-list hero of the Vietnamese people, Ngo Quyn. In Chinese, that's Wu Quan. The Southern Han military decided to make an all-out effort to go in and permanently quell these disturbances. And in the landmark year of 938, the two sides engaged in battle. Ngo Quyn rose to the fore and took command in this dark hour to lead the defense against the Southern Han forces. He had a lot of time to prepare for this moment and had earlier been tipped off as far as what the Southern Han battle strategy was. So when the Southern Han military came in full force, he was ready. Ngo Quyn knew the Chinese forces were going to sail up the Bakdang River in order to penetrate the Delta region and carry out their invasion of the area that is today the city of Hanoi. You know, this moment in Vietnam history, well, it isn't anything like Washington's crossing the Delaware on Christmas night, 1776. But as far as the mythology or national legends go, this story of the first battle of the Bakdang River is just as glorious. The mouth of this river, the Bakdang, is right near the beautiful tourist site of Ha Long Bay, and just north of Hai Phong. The southern Han ended up getting out-strategized and out-fought, and at this battle of the Bakdang River, they were soundly defeated by the forces led by Ngo Quyn. Knowing with a high degree of certainty that the southern Han ships would sail up the Bakdang, when the tide was low, Ngo Quyn had large wooden pikes tipped with sharp iron points embedded deep into the riverbed, slanting upriver. Ngo Quyn observed that this particular body of water, when it was high tide, there was no way to see this gauntlet of sharp pikes beneath the surface. At low tide, however, they became visible and no vessel could get past them. Everything went according to plan. Indeed, just as Ngo Quyn predicted... The southern Han forces sailed up the Bakdang River at high tide towards the capital. They were oblivious to the trap being laid and chased the Viet forces who were carrying out a strategic retreat, luring them deeper and deeper upriver to a certain point. Sure enough, at low tide, the oversized southern Han vessels were left stranded and became easy targets for Ngo Quyn's army. And then they realized their predicament. The southern Han vessels attempted to about-face, but got all tangled up with these deadly barriers laid out across the river that prevented their retreat. Caught between the Viet army and unable to retreat because of the deadly trap laid by Ngo Quyn, the Chinese forces got destroyed by this ruse, and the Viet troops fell on the helpless southern Han army. Totally a one-sided battle. The Song Bakdang, the Bakdang River, the Baitung Jiang, in Vietnam history was not only the site of this battle between southern Han and Viet forces, led by Ngo Quyn in 938, two more times, in 981 and a third time in 1288. This historic river witnessed epic and deciding battles against their northern neighbor. Three times over the last millennium, Vietnam was able to break free from China's domination of the Red River Plain. And when Ngo Quyn's army defeated the southern Han forces, it finally put an end to this almost 
1,000-year on-again, off-again Chinese domination over Vietnam, going back to 111 BCE, when Zhao Tuo's Nanyue kingdom fell to the Western Han. You remember, the Zhong sisters shook them off between 39 and 43 CE, but China was able to reconquer this land until Li Namde was able to again reassert Vietnamese sovereignty over this land. But we recall from last episode that uh, Li Namde's Li dynasty fell to the Tang in 602, and that commenced this third period of Chinese domination over Vietnam. And with Southern Han's defeat in 938, the third period of domination ended. There's going to be one more time when Vietnam falls under China's control, but we'll get to that next episode. Once the smoke cleared, Ngo Quyen declared himself king and set his capital up at the old Lac Fortress of Goulua, once again located in historic Hanoi. The southern Han government, admitting defeat, recognized this new independent regime the following year in 939. And in that year, the first real Vietnamese dynasty began. Ngo Quyen became known as Ngo Vung. Vung, of course, means king, or Wang. And Ngo Vung called his new realm Dai Viet, Dai Yue in Mandarin. Free of the Chinese yoke at last. But the millennium of impact China had had on Vietnam, culturally and politically, still remained. Up until this time in the 10th century, whatever you wanted to know about Vietnam came from Chinese sources. But starting here, Ngo Dynasty, Vietnamese started writing their own histories in their own language. In addition to these official histories, all kinds of other literary work began appearing that discussed Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. The Vietnamese language was still evolving, but that didn't stop the poets of all local literary talents of the day. Around this time, three more tones were added to Vietnamese, bringing the 10th century total up to six, which is where I believe it's at right now. Chinese, the language that is, was hardly abandoned, though. For anything of a political, legal, or diplomatic nature, classical Chinese was still the lingua franca of Vietnam. Everything was still written in Chinese characters, but the Vietnamese language though heavily flavored with Chinese words and sounds, here became the official language of the Viet court. The Dai Viet may have rid themselves of the Chinese in 938, but they still had to deal with other regional antagonizers, hill tribes to the west, as well as an aggressive Champa kingdom to the south. But it was internal strife that led to anarchy that ultimately brought down the Ngo dynasty. They had a limited power center and were never able to project power beyond the small Red River Delta core region. Another big reason that didn't allow the Vietnamese to savor this victory for long was that after his triumph in 938, the heroic founder, Ngo Quyen, did not live long. He died in 944, and I don't know how many times we heard this before following the death of a monarch. There followed a succession crisis, a nasty period of the usual murder and moving around the chess pieces. The upshot was that the Ngo dynasty fell under the rule of 12 warlords who controlled different parts of Dai Viet all up and down the Red River. After more than 20 years of this unstable, violent, and poisonous state of affairs, 
this period of the Twelve Lords, as it's called, came to a crescendo between 966 to 968. One of these Twelve Lords was named Din Bo Lin. He was the son of a general who fought for Ngokwin. He fought against and ultimately defeated the other eleven independent lords and emerged from this 24-year period of civil strife as the greatest power. He seized the throne, moved the capital, and in 968 established a short-lived dynasty, the Din dynasty, the Nya Din. He started off as a king, but ended up as an emperor, declaring himself Din Ding Huang De, Huang De being the Vietnamese for Huang Di, emperor. He was Vietnam's first-ever homegrown emperor. Remember, Zhao Tuo was the first emperor of Vietnam. But he came from Hebei. He was Han Chinese. Din Bo Lin played for the home team. He's credited with instituting a whole slew of reforms to the land. Chinese-style reforms, but with Vietnamese characteristics, you could say. China, in the meantime, was getting back on its feet from all the years of chaos that began in the Tang in the mid-8th century. They went through a hard time, but by 960, China was unified under the Song. Well, There was eight more years of mopping up, but this late into the 10th century, it's northern Song time. And when the Song court had the time to look to the southernmost reaches of their empire, they did not accept Din Bo Lin as an emperor. They tolerated his royal title, but referred to him still as the king of Annam and his land as a vassal kingdom of Song, China, not as an independent kingdom. This was how the Song court addressed him in all official diplomatic communication. They never recognized him as an emperor. Well, not to get too bogged down in Vietnam history here, I'm trying to keep it relative to China. Both Din Bo Lin and his son and heir were assassinated in 979. And at this moment of political crisis down there for this budding dynasty, a neat and orderly succession did not happen. And that, as far as we know from world history, (laughs) that's usually the kiss of death for a dynasty. And I'll tell you right now, that's what happened in Din Bo Lin's case, as well as his Din dynasty. The next hero to emerge from Vietnam history, well, I'm just naming the marquee stars. There were a lot more, of course. This one was a general who served under Din Bo Lin named Le Huan. He rose to the fore at a moment of crisis for Vietnam, when the Song armies, seeing what was going on down there following the royal assassination, started getting some ideas. Now, being the most powerful domestic force at this time, Lei Huan seized power and declared himself emperor in 980. And he called his dynasty the Early Lei, and it lasted till 1009. With the establishment of this dynasty, Lei Huan ushered in a period of Viet independence. Nobody's province, free from the man. The land was now called Dai Go Viet. But doubting that Lei Huan had what it took to hold it all together, the two powers to the north and south, China and Champa, they began making battle plans to bring the Lei dynasty to a speedy conclusion. Song armies, seeing the political crisis with the new dynasty, started marching on Vietnam immediately in late 980-981. Once again, the Chinese Imperial Navy headed up the same Bac Dang River that the Southern Han navigated back in 938 with disastrous results. It was a smaller force this time, but still formidable. Lei Wan 
led his armies well, and used the home field advantage brilliantly, defeating the Song in this second battle of the Bakdang River. Another bitter defeat for the Chinese military. History repeats. The Song military had executed a two-pronged attack by land and sea, and they both got thwarted. It was a humiliating defeat for the Song military in Vietnam, and both generals did not survive the punishment meted out to them by the second Song Emperor Taizong. An even bigger headache for Lei Wan's new dynasty was in dealing with armies from Champa. They were always rivals, the north and south of Vietnam. The people living in Vietnam's geographic south. They weren't the same as the northerners any more than your average Yellow River Valley Han Chinese was to the Yue down in southernmost China. Well, back then, anyway. There hadn't been enough mixing yet between north and south to reach some sort of equilibrium. So Champa was Hindu and Indian-influenced, and in the north, with the developing Viet culture, it was Buddhist and more Chinese-influenced. After the Chinese navy went down in defeat a second time on the Bakdang River, you can bet Lei Wan gathered up his forces and marched straight down to Champa for a nice, punitive expedition. Champa had teamed up with China to put an end to the Lei dynasty. A lot of bad blood existed between the rulers of Champa and Daiko Viet. The Viet forces, led by Lei Huan, went into Champa and sacked the place and returned home with vast amounts of captured riches and spoils of war. With Song Emperor Taizong seething up in Kaifeng, Lei Wan decided to put on a major charm offensive to try and appease this younger brother of the Song founder, Zhao Kuangyin. He sent tribute to the Song court, offering all the best Daiko Viet had to offer. He did everything he could to appear the benign friend of China, exchanging visits and always being cordial, looking the other way when they, you know, tried to put him in his place by not referring to him by his title. However, Lei Wan, like Lord McCartney in 1793, didn't want to bend the knee to the Song Emperor. He drew the line there. For the meanwhile, during this early Lei and Daiko Viet and in Song China, Circumstances on both sides allowed China and Vietnam to remain the best of frenemies, at least for the meanwhile. On the home front, Lei Wan did what he could over his quarter-century reign to spiff up the land, organize it, administer it, and attend to all the rituals and ceremonies required of him. His dynasty, however, didn't have much lasting power beyond his reign. Once he died in 1005, and after a short reign of terror by his sadistic and degenerate son, a commander of the palace guard put this Vietnamese Caligula and the royal court out of its misery. Then, four years later, in 1009, it was all over for the early Lei dynasty. An official in the Lei government emerged from the rubble named Li Gongwun, though he's better known in Vietnamese history by his regnal name, Li Taito, that Taito or Taizu name tells you he was the founder of a dynasty. So it was out with the early Lei, and in its place came the later Li. It's called later Li to differentiate it from the early Li of 544 to 602. You recall earlier in episode two, I mentioned Li Bi 
better known as Li Nam Dei, who shook off the formidable Liang Dynasty and set up his own independent state, the Kingdom of Wang Sun, in 544. This is also referred to as the early Li. Now you had the later Li. As was the emperor's prerogative, he moved the capital back to Dai La, of course, one of the many names for different districts of the city we know today as Hanoi. He renamed his city Tang Long, Shenglong, Rising Dragon. This was in 1010. And in this act of declaring the establishment of Tang Long, Li Taito got himself written into the history books as the founder of Hanoi, with the year 1010 being the year of the city's official founding. It still had several more centuries to go before it starts showing up on the maps as Hanoi. Henei in uh, Mandarin means within the rivers, the Doulik and Dung rivers specifically. Founding emperor Li Taito reigned 1009 to 1028 and got to enjoy the moment when Vietnam hit its first very own golden age. That is to say, relative to previous times, there was, with the exception of a resurgent champa, general peace, economic prosperity, and a stable royal court. And no Chinese armies banging down the door. Li Taito at first ruled the land as an old-style king, but in time, he oversaw the creation and construction of a whole big Chinese-style imperial bureaucracy that, like its inspiration up north, outlived the monarch and survived from king to king and dynasty to dynasty. Under the previous Lei dynasty, central authority had degraded to an eastern Zhou dynasty kind of a situation. The farther from the capital one wandered, the less sway the king had. Li Taito's first order of business was to consolidate his domain and his power over everyone. Quoting author Ben Kiernan regarding the later Li dynasty, he said it had, quote, forged a new Viet political culture that mingled indigenous spirit worship with Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, other cultural influences, and elements of Hinduism from Champa, end quote. Another major player in the region who is just now starting to get real big was the Khmer Empire, just west of Champa, modern-day Cambodia. The Li tried to make nice with them and maintain good relations. This Khmer land was what the Vietnamese had previously called Jin La, in Chinese, Jun La. That was the area around the former kingdom of Funan, Mekong Delta, and to the west of there. Li Taito needed good relations further south in order to be able to focus on the latest round of wars with Champa. In fact, if you look at Vietnam history from the earliest times, those who were in charge of the Red River Valley and the people gradually developing up and down the plain, it was always a case of balancing relations with China, with Champa, with Lin Yi, or Chen La, or these tribesmen who lived in the hills to the west of northern Vietnam in present-day Laos. Each was always trying to get a piece of that land watered by the Red River. It was a never-ending state of affairs for whoever ruled in Hanoi, trying to maintain a balance that posed the least threat to the Viet people. And with the visit in early March 2018 of all 332 meters of the USS Carl Vinson, this balancing act still goes on today. While Li Taito was distracted in Champa, and after enough time had passed since the 
Song military got whipped at the last battle of the Bakdang River. Beginning in 1075, there was yet a new call that went out in Kaifeng that the time was right to give it one more try to take back this northern Vietnam territory. It was none other than the great reforming chancellor, Wang Anshi, who personally advised the Song Shenzong Emperor that with Vietnam weakened and not paying attention, there was never a better time than the present than to go in and reassert control over this wayward province, who again had the audacity to call their leader an emperor. What followed became known as the Li Song War. In Mandarin, the Song Yue, Xi Ning Chanzheng, this raged from 1075 to 1077. China's opening move was to use their influence to enforce an embargo that prevented any trade with Vietnam. Li Taidou saw what was happening and felt well, he had to carry out some kind of preemptive strike to counter what he knew was an imminent invasion from Song. He first led 100,000 Viet troops up into Guangxi to the present-day capital of Nanning. It was called Yong back then. And after a 42-day siege, the city fell, and there was wholesale slaughter in Nanning committed by troops led by Li Taidou's most trusted general, Li Tonggit, Li Changjie in Mandarin. It was quite a punch in the face to the Song. The Song emperor's response to the defeat in Nanning was to teach Vietnam a lesson. So they gathered up 300,000 soldiers and marched south in the direction of the Daigo Viet capital of Tanglong. Allied with China, never passing up on an opportunity, were the Champa and Khmer armies. It was a brutal three years with both sides sustaining heavy losses. General Li Tong Git, another A-list hero from Vietnam history, defeated everything that was thrown at him. The Chinese losses of human life had already added up to the hundreds of thousands. And after the Song army threw in the towel, gave up, and headed back north, Li Tong Git went down and ran roughshod over Champa, teaching them not to team up with China against Daiko Viet. Li Tong Git is perhaps better known for the famous patriotic poem that really shakes a fist at China and says, stay out of my lands. This was called by some historians Vietnam's First Declaration of Independence. In Chinese, the poem is called Nan Guo Shan He, Nam Guk Sung Ha. This is the Vietnamese version of Yue Fei's Huan Wo He Shan in the 12th century. We featured Yue Fei in CHP episode 95. The best strategy, and this was adopted by most all Viet rulers, was always to try and find some way to work things out with China. And this is what ended up happening in this case. They both took a step back from the brink, and in the end, to keep the peace, Daiko Viet had to let go of two provinces that are today part of Vietnam and located just south of the Guangxi border. Li Tung Kiet, now he knew there was no stopping China for good, and the capital at Tanglong had already been threatened. Several years later, by 1082, the Li ruler returned lands that had been seized from China, and by the year 1084, well, everything was not exactly lovey-dovey, but both sides managed to keep the peace and to define the borders where Vietnam ended and Guangxi and Yunnan began. 
And these borders they agreed to during the final year of Emperor Shenzong's reign, they pretty much stayed that way all the way into modern times. By the end of the 11th century, Song China was starting to sweat from the saber-rattling of their ambitious northern neighbors, the Jurchens. This helped ensure that Daiko Viet wouldn't be harassed by any Chinese armies for the time being. While Emperor Huizong and the Song dynasty were distracted by the Jurchens, the Li dynasty enjoyed a nice golden age. By 1164, though, the now southern Song Emperor Xiaozong well, he formally acknowledged Vietnam as a kingdom rather than as a part of the province of Jiao, which is what they always considered it as. By the time of the fifth or sixth emperor of the Li dynasty, things were starting to wind down. By the seventh emperor in 1175, the dynasty's best days were well behind them. By the 1190s, a powerful and influential family down in Daiko Viet infiltrated the halls of power through marriage and began to bulk up their presence at the royal court. And this family was the powerful Zhen clan, who long ago had made their way to these Red River Delta lands from Fujian province. The crown prince, who became the final Li dynasty emperor, had married the daughter of Zhen Li, the patriarch of the Zhen family. During the Li dynasty, the Zhen's were like the Fujiwaras in Japan, intermarrying into the royal Li family constantly and wielding great power and influence because of that. The final Li emperor's wife, the empress, well, she was not the backseat driver type, she asserted herself quite aggressively and used her power to place enough of her Zhen relatives in powerful positions so that in October 1224, her husband, the emperor, decided to abdicate in favor of the most powerful force in the government at that time, Zhen Tu Dao, head of the royal guard. Zhen Tu Dao is another headlining hero from Vietnam history, even though he had a ruthless side about him. Once he put an end to the already greatly diminished Li dynasty, he had any and all surviving Li family royals murdered. Not the first time anyone did that. Throughout world history, there were a lot of rulers and many civilizations who felt compelled to do this kind of house cleaning. In short, it was a very messy cloak and dagger transition from Li to Zhen. Zhen Tu Dou emerged as the most powerful force, but utilized his power from behind the throne, ruling through the first Zhen emperor, conveniently still a child, named Zhen Tai Dong. This nephew of Zhen Tu Dou was married to a daughter from the Lees, and this little boy emperor, Zhang Tai Dong, grows up and ends up having a very formidable run as a dynasty founder, reigning from 1225 to 1258. At the time of the founding of the Zhen dynasty, the population of Vietnam, which at this time in history was essentially the Red River Plain and Delta, was about 1.2 million. In a century, that number will double. That's always a good sign of a successful dynasty. Peace, good harvests, and a thriving economy. Sometimes that's all it takes. The Zhuns brought back the Chinese-style civil service exams that were based on the Confucian classics. It had been done away with in 1096 during the previous dynasty. In the History of Chinese Philosophy series, we saw how in China... The Confucian literati class sprang forth from among the unemployed shi, or knights, whose feudal lord had been deposed. 
From this group of knights emerged the Rus school of thought and later on the whole Confucian-based civil service and government administration. In Vietnam, this Confucian literati group came from the rich peasants, who were not major landowners, but rather small and medium-sized, rich enough not to have to work, and who could afford a classical Confucian education, just like anyone else in the North. The Zhan dynasty gets the dubious distinction of being the ruling family at the time of the Mongol Yuan dynasty invasions of Vietnam. The reason why there isn't much mention of China in the 13th century is that the Middle Kingdom was under a great deal of stress from this frightful neighbor to the north, the Mongols, and they're just about to unleash their armies all over China. The 13th century and the Mongols, and world history, go hand in hand. They were definitely the biggest thing to happen during that bloody hundred years. CHP episodes 169-170 from back in 2016, we looked at the Mongol Yuan dynasty. Temujin was born in 1162. He did in the Xixia by 1227, ditto to the once invincible Jurchen Jin dynasty in 1234. Then the Mongols took Tibet in 1240, Dali in Yunnan in 1254, remember? The successor kingdom to Nanzhou. Then the southern Song got trounced after a hell of a fight in 1279. But for all intents and purposes in 1271, it was all over for this once great southern dynasty that rose out of the ashes of the decimated northern Song. That was when Kublai Khan established the Yuan dynasty, 1271. And with China now out of the way, you know who was next. So rather than get into that right now, let's just say class dismissed. Next episode, we'll see what happened to the Zhen Dynasty. I'll give you a hint. They hang in there until 1400. More on the Zhen's next time, I assure you. Okay, that's going to be about it for me this time. Laszlo Montgomery here, bidding everyone in 10,000 countries around the world a fond farewell. Part four next time, be there or be square. Take care, everyone.